Well, uh, as you know, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg does an amazing job for us every single Tuesday with uh, something we call Israel at 75. He goes through some of the important uh, history of um, modern Israel. Um, and today, literally today, he is starting a series at 9 o'clock Eastern time with us on the Yom Kippur War. The series is um, the series is actually going to end, is going to wrap up a couple of months from now, right around Yom Kippur Sukkot time, around the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. For those of us who are old enough to remember the Yom Kippur War, it is hard to believe that it's almost 50 years. Uh, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg, who uh, was a long, long time elementary school principal at the Yeshiva Flapush, is now director of the William S. Levine Family Shoah Institute, and he is with us live via telephone. Rabbi Hertzberg, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum. Good morning. A pleasure to be here. I think it's uh, accurate to state that uh, those who are enjoying p- uh, present Israel, those who are uh, benefiting and um, enjoying the incredible growth and technology and, uh, and everything that Israel has to offer these days, um, I think it's safe to say that the Yom Kippur War was a very, very big turning point in all of that, in establishing Israel uh, the way it is today. Would you agree that the Yom Kippur War was a key event in uh, Israel's young history? Absolutely. You know, we all know that in 1967, where the Milchemet was a transformative event in terms of the Middle East, but in terms of where we are today, really the Yom Kippur War changed everything. And I remember with uh, you know, Victor Kalani telling me that, yeah, it, it changed everything from political viewpoints to how they mobilize the army and the tactics that they, and the operational uh, tactics that they use now in the military. It changed, it, it was the game changer. Let me let me go through some of the. I don't know if you want to address all of these. We want people to make sure to tune in to hear your presentation and to and to gain from it. But let let me go through some of the uh, uh, cliches, uh, some of the observations that have been made over these last fifty years. Many of which I remember as a young kid when the Yom Kippur War broke out. First of all, um, is it safe to say that the dramatic uh, analysis that says that uh, the enemy had been preparing for six years for the Yom Kippur War, meaning that the moment that the Six-Day War was over, they had started preparing for this next encounter six years later. Would you say that's accurate? Well, one of the big thing, major things that comes out of it, especially when it comes to Sadat's perspective, which really is the key perspective uh, looking at the Arab side, was about the Arab honor. And, in fact, the research shows that Sadat was looking for a relatively small war, small victory, so that the Arab honor would be restored and he would be able to go to the negotiating table from a stronger standpoint. So, in that sense, yes, from the day that the uh, Arabs lost the Six-Day War, they were looking uh, to restore that, and certainly in the War of Attrition, the Nasser dies and Sadat takes over, 
and he says he's going to go to war, not go to war as he's building up the uh, his army. He has this love-hate relationship with the Soviet Union. They're in again, out again. But in that sense, yes, it was not, uh, from the Arab perspective, it was not game over. It was, okay, let's get to the next round. And to a degree, again, I don't want to give the enemy that much credit, but to a degree, he did take that victory lap. Uh, even if history shows that they did not win the war, still Sadat was able to uh, save some face once the war ended. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Sadat did view it as a victory towards the end, and these are some of the things we'll discuss in the, uh, in, in the, in the podcast, that uh, when, when his tanks go outside of the uh, umbrella of the SAM missile batteries, he, he loses a major victory, which gives Israel the uh, turning point in the Sinai. But yes, he, he did restore the Arab honor. They, they, they were able to deceive Israel. I mean, the Israeli leadership certainly helped in their own self-deception. But in that sense, uh, he demonstrated that the Israeli armies was not invincible and that they, uh, the Arab armies fought admirably on the, on the battlefield. And you, and you speak to the generals and the regular soldiers at that point who, who were there, the veterans certainly will say they were up against a very, very committed, uh, tough enemy. Right, Dr. David Hertzberg is with us. He's actually leading a trip to Israel, which we're going to discuss in a couple of minutes. Get ready if you want to head to Israel at the beginning of August to participate in a, uh, in a trip that will cover a lot of this material and we'll explain all that coming up. Um, so the biggest, uh, uh, the most common um, a statement about the war is that Israel was taken completely by surprise. After all, it was Yom Kippur. After all, anybody who was there in 1973, meaning in Israel, uh, they saw the panic. They saw the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, how everybody was uh, trying to uh, figure out where to go, what to do. It is Yom Kippur, after all, and so many people, of course, are observant uh, in Israel, and uh, they were not exactly sure how to handle things. It was, it was a, it was, it was a chaotic situation. Uh, however, uh, in retrospect, would it be unfair to say that Israel was in fact caught completely by surprise? Well, the sad thing is, is that they weren't really caught completely by surprise. They had, a, they had in fact, now people sometimes straight try to make the comparison to Pearl Harbor. Right. But the comparison falls apart because actually they had all the information they needed, but the analysts in the uh, Israeli military intelligence led by General Zaira interpreted it in the wrong way. But if you spoke to the Chayalim that were on the, on the ground in the Golan and in, in, in the Suez Canal area, they also saw what was happening and in their minds they knew this was going to be what? This, this wasn't uh, practice drills, this wasn't maneuvers, what they were seeing. So there was a lot of sadly self-deception and wrong decisions made right before the war, but it should not have come as a surprise. They had all the, all the evidence was there. For those of us who are uh, fascinated by the shift, and I think it's safe to say that there has been a shift in the United States-Russian relationship over the last couple of years, right? The war in Ukraine has obviously um, uh, strained the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, um, the U.S.-Russia relationship in 1973 and where it was at that point was a key to how the war proceeded once it started, correct? Well, it became a, 
it, it, it became a confrontation between the Soviet Union and America, and there were moments towards the end of the war where the DEFCON level was raised, and there was fear of a uh, superpower uh, confrontation at that point. Now, part of it was a misreading of uh, a letter from Brezhnev. Uh, we also need to bear in mind that this was in the heart of Watergate, so Nixon was sometimes very focused and sometimes totally out of it. It was right at the same time Spiro Agnew, the vice president, had to resign out of corruption. So it was a really uh, tumultuous period going on, which did allow for the possibility of escalation, unintentional escalation between the superpowers. Right, at that but, time. but it, it would be interesting to know, and, and, and not only that, it's also the height of the Cold War. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, a, a, strange, a strange relationship doesn't even begin to describe uh, what the U.S. and Russia were all about. But it would be interesting in retrospect to think about if there was a positive relationship, if there was uh, a, an atmosphere of cooperation between the two countries, how different this battle in the Middle East would have been. Correct. I think that's very fair to say. You know, the Soviet Union was supplying the weapons to Sadat and to Assad in Syria. Where the Americans were supplying the weapons ultimately um, to the Israelis. But yes, had there been greater cooperation, greater communication between the two superpowers, they may have been able to uh, exert greater influence on the uh, local, the local politicians, the local government. And final, time. and finally, before we talk about the trip that you're going to be conducting, that you're going to be leading, and before we remind everybody to tune in at nine o'clock, just an hour from now, to hear your presentation about the Yom Kippur War, um, th- much credit is given to the United States for the weaponry uh, that they did, in fact, give to Israel to fight the Yom Kippur War, and eventually to end the Yom Kippur War, I mean, and, and from a position of strength. Um, w- would it be fair to call that miraculous? Was it, in fact, a miracle that the U.S., because a lot of people like to paint it that way, that it was a miracle that the United States responded the way they did and that normally or in other circumstances they were not as quick to help Israel militarily the way they did during the Yom Kippur War. How would you evaluate that? So actually, the American supplying of weapons is one of the most interesting and controversial aspects in studying the Yom Kippur War. First of all, there's the accusation that Kissinger was playing his own game. Uh, he, you know, he wanted Israel to win, but not, but not to win by too much, ultimately, so that he could set the stage for the negotiation afterwards. Then it's a big question, the, the airlift, which was miraculous in the sense that nobody else in the world wanted to help out, and Nixon really steps up at this point to get the, uh, the, the American airlift. But the question is, what exactly did the airlift accomplish? How critical it was at the, at the time? In fact, it seems that most of the supplies get into Israel by ship, not by plane. But it certainly seems that airlift if not in the immediacy, the fact that America starts sending it, number one, raises the morale of Israel. There's some pictures of Golda Meir actually greeting the uh, planes at, uh, at the Air Force bases. Uh, so it certainly raises the morale. Also, that as the Israelis were running out of ammunition, they were able to shoot their weapons, and, and especially on the artillery, with greater abandon because they knew they were being resupplied. So it definitely helped. The question is to what extent. This is the uh, the historians argue over that. Hard to believe that it's fifty years, huh? Hard to believe it was fifty. It's you know it's hard to believe it's fifty years. And the wounds, though, you know, when you speak to veterans, it was it's still like yesterday. I, I remember this past January, I, I was in a cab, uh, and the driver was a veteran. 
and I started talking about the Yom Kippur War. He was in the Sinai, and he told me since that war, he really hasn't thought about it. He said to me, you probably know about more about the war than I did. I knew the tank to the left of me, to the right of me. They were both destroyed. It's the war. I don't want, no, I don't want anything to do with it. So the wounds, the wounds are still very, very much fresh. Uh, the physical and certainly the, uh, the psychological wounds are still very, very fresh. Unbelievable. Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg is with us. Uh, don't forget, everybody, one hour from now, Israel at 75, a segment that I can continue to get amazing compliments about, the fact that we present it each and every week. And now, between now and the Yom Kippur Sukkot week, uh, when we're actually going to have the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, uh, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg will be addressing the Yom Kippur War in this series. It begins today. Make sure to be tuned in. If you can't find it uh, or if you ha- don't have the opportunity to listen to it live, make sure to find it in our archives uh, to tune in. Um, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg is director of the Yeshiva Flatbush William S. Levine Family Shoah Institute. The battlefield tour that we alluded to is starting on August 2nd. August 2nd, they're going to be heading to Israel. Uh, they will be touring the Golan Heights and no doubt other areas as well with Yom Kippur war hero Avigdor Kaalani. Again, it starts August the 2nd. If you'd like information about taking this unique tour and being in Israel to see history come to life, you can email Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg at D. Hertzberg, H-E-R-T-Z-B-E-R-G, at flatbush.org. Again, that's D. Hertzberg at flatbush.org. What other details, Rabbi Hertzberg, can you give us regarding the trip? So this is a one-day trip. We'll be leaving from a hotel in Yerushalayim. We'll be looking at uh, Talsaki, which is a famous uh, incident in the in the world. And we're going to be meeting up with a vigor at the Emek Abacha battlefield, which is the north Golanites, where he himself fought one of the most pivotal battles of the of the war and uh he'll be giving his own ex and it's a fascinating explanation i've done it with him um and and being there in the actual territory that occurred with the landscapes it's just or or inspiring and, and painful at the uh at the same moment and tell you victor kalani if you've ever met him he's just a wonderful person um he can focus on being the most charming person to the most focused uh, military person. Quick anecdote: When I went with him last, uh, up two years ago, we were in the car together, and I start texting my wife, and he gets in that very general voice of his, and he says, in Hebrew, he goes to me, "You're either listening to me or you're texting your wife. You can't do both. I'll give you one minute each hour to contact her, but that's it. Otherwise, I'm turning the car around and we're going back to Tel Aviv." Wow, your uh, your first experience <laughs> being in the military, Doctor Hertzberg. <laughs> so I kind of saluted there in the car said yes sir <laughs> all right so just not to confuse anybody this is not your traditional you know leaving from the united states and doing a, a week or two weeks in israel this is anybody who's in israel or plans on being there august 2nd is the day and you could join this battlefield tour with her by dr david hertzberg and yom kippur war hero uh, victor kalani right anybody who's in israel august 2nd should feel free to make arrangements to be there correct and you know email me and i'll send them the information the email address, again, if you're in Israel August 2nd, the email address, dhertzberg, H-E-R-T-Z-B-E-R-G at flatbush.org, dhertzberg at flatbush.org. An hour from now, it's Israel at 75, or by Dr. David Hertzberg, uh, with that uh, continuing series. Uh, today, he'll actually start uh, the story of the Yom Kippur War. That will continue until uh, Yom Kippur time when we commemorate the 50th anniversary 
of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg, continued success with all you're, that you're doing with us, with all you're doing with the uh, Levine Family Shoah Institute, and of course, good luck with the upcoming trip to Israel. Thank you so much, Nachum. Have a wonderful day. More coming up at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app.